Let's uh, close our eyes and bow our heads and be still before our Father who is holy. Be still and know that I am God, Yahweh said. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. That commandment enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, thy servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, thank you for the hunger that King David had as he penned this psalm of Scripture, this song that the Jewish people sang and continue to sing to this day. May we have that kind of heart, that kind of hunger, just as we would enjoy honey on a spoon. May we enjoy the sweet drippings of your word We come this morning and confess, some of us, that that hunger just is not there. And I pray that you would change whatever needs to change. Maybe someone, because they've never been saved, and this is just a closed book. Others, they've met you, but they've allowed the music and the movies and the lusts of this world to overcrowd a heart for Christ. So may you have your way. May we confess and forsake those things. We know we live in a day of lukewarmness. You told us that would be the atmosphere before Jesus returns from heaven. So help us not to get our cue from our friends, our peers, from our neighbors, but may our direction come solely from this book. Father, we admit that the worst form of child abuse in this nation is that of spiritual neglect. And we know that the majority, some 80% of the children in America, no longer attend church. Now, Father, we can't control the whole world, but you've given us this county to make an impact on. So we pray for those we've already invited and those we might invite, that you would work in the hearts. We pray for the children of believing parents that will come this week, that they would be edified and challenged to go further. And for those children who have never understood and embraced the gospel, that this week would be a turning point in their lives. Now, you've called us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we come as your people, as we open thy word, which is truth. You said, Jesus, sanctify them in the truth. We know it's the very instrument of conversion, for you said we're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. But we also know, Father, this, you said, is the instrument of our growth. So like newborn babes, we want to hunger after the pure milk of the word today, that we can grow. Let all bitterness and wrath and slander and anger be put far from us and help us to long for these truths. Help me, Father, this morning as I preach. Help those in Graniteville, those in Grays, those in Hilton Head and Bluffton, and those here and those live streaming, some in other parts of the world, 
May the Spirit of God have his sovereign sway over each and every heart. And I ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake, amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19. If you are new to the Bible, even the casual reader of Scripture cannot miss the fact that full from Genesis to Revelation is the coming of Messiah, but not just his first coming, his second coming. Christ is coming again to rule and reign sovereignly on the earth. And that is emphasized in at least 17 different books of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus referred to his second coming some 21 times. And seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament deal with the return of Jesus from heaven. For every one verse on the first coming of Christ, there are eight verses on the second coming of Christ. And there are over 300 references in the New Testament alone to the return of Jesus from heaven. And that's what you might expect. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to complete our salvation. Our salvation is not yet complete. If you are born again, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. The Bible calls that justification. You are, I hope, being saved from the power of sin. The Bible calls that sanctification. In some glorious, wonderful day when Jesus comes back, he will complete your salvation. You'll be saved from the very presence of sin. The Bible refers to that as glorification. And so prophecy is all about Jesus. It's all about salvation. We studied last time where we finished in verse 10 that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is to say the very nature, the sum and total of all prophecy is about Jesus. It points to him. And in the final thought in the Bible, Jesus states, yes, I am coming quickly. And the apostle John says, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. Listen, these are great days in which to be alive. And the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of two comings of Messiah. What they did not fully understand is that there are two mountain peaks of prophecy, but between those two mountain peaks, sometimes offered in the same verse to give the full picture of salvation, is that there was a valley in between. And we call that valley in between the church age, where God is building His church. Listen, when Jesus came the first time, he came meek and lowly. He came as a suffering servant. But when he comes again, he is coming as a sovereign ruler. He is going to come as a sovereign reigning king. And the Bible tells us that we are to be looking. We are to be watching for that return. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, Christian Behavior, as he relates the perspective the Christian is to have concerning the future. He wrote, a continued looking forward to the eternal world is not some, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Now that's good because the Bible teaches as we consider, focus, and meditate on the future return of Jesus, it will affect the way we are now. 
You think about that this morning as we read our text of Scripture. We're working verse by verse through the Revelation. We want to begin in verse 11 where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bible. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now there on your note-taking outline, it's in your bulletin if you're new, there are three simple truths. I want us to consider as we think of our returning king. First, I want you to notice the appearance, the appearance of the coming king. Notice how John begins verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. Now, let me just say parenthetically, just as there are people who do not believe that Jesus literally, actually, bodily was raised from the dead, and you've got to be careful in the day that we live in. There are pastors across our nation who use the same terms, the same great words of historical Christianity, but they use a different dictionary in which to define those words. So there was a pastor in Hilton Head who spoke of the resurrection of Jesus, and he was saying, well, Jesus, when you pulled back the veneer, he is raised up in our hearts, but not that he literally came out of a grave. Even so, there are people who speak of the second coming of Christ that way. Oh, he'll come for you maybe when, you know, you die and he'll take you to heaven, if they even believe that. Or they say, well, the second coming of Jesus is not literal. It's his work in the society as it becomes more Christianized. Well, actually, it's not going to become more Christianized. The Bible teaches before his second coming it's going to get far worse but the Bible affirms he is actually coming again. At his ascension there on the Mount of Olives, those two angels said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way that you watched him go into heaven. Jesus went away literally, actually, bodily into heaven, and he will come in just the same way, literally, actually, bodily, visibly to the earth. Now you say, well, John saw this. Will we see it? Yes, we will. He's already affirmed in the opening chapter of these words. Behold, he is coming with the clouds in every eye. We'll see him. Even those who pierce him, even those who lived a few thousand years ago, every person from all of time will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So here's what John says, and I saw heaven opened. Now, remember the opening words of the Revelation in the very first verse. It's entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, there's no such book called Revelations. It's Revelation, singular. It's a single unveiling. That's what the word means, to uncover, to unveil. The word is apocalypsis. 
And if you transliterate a word, you take the sound of the word from the original language and you form it into the language you're translating into. And so, in some of our English Bibles, it doesn't say the revelation. It says over chapter 1, the apocalypse. And that's not bad because that's what the word means. This is a book that is unveiling the person of Christ. He is the hero of the revelation. In fact, he's the hero of all the Scripture. Again, last week, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. And if you can read the revelation and all you see is the Antichrist and his false prophet and all these judgments and you miss Jesus, you've missed the purpose and message of the book. Maybe the best way to describe this unveiling is like a man who has honed out a beautiful statue out of marble. And it's been covered after weeks, maybe even years and months of work. And now the time is for the unveiling. And they pull the cord and off comes that cloth and you see the statue that he has created. Listen, everything to what we've studied up to this point, 1911, have been preparing us for this unveiling for this time when Jesus will literally come back to the earth. And that's how the Bible describes his coming. He first comes in the air. We call that the rapture. But he comes at the second coming to the earth. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah wrote. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. We'll examine that next time in the next paragraph. We've already been introduced to the battle of the Armageddon that Zechariah has been speaking of. And Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to crush the nations of the world. And in that day, the Bible says his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 64, which he says is going to be fulfilled in the Jewish people at the second coming. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Listen, when he came the first time, for the most part, the Hebrew people, Israel, missed it. They did not believe Jesus was the promised Messiah. But listen, when he comes the second time, as a whole, the nation will embrace Jesus as Lord. One of the functions as we've been studying of this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation is to bring Israel to his knees. Now, Christ can come at any time in the rapture, but he cannot come in the second coming until Israel comes to faith. That's what Jesus said. Listen to his words in Matthew 23. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we studied in the 12th chapter of the Revelation that the Jewish people under the Antichrist are going to experience incredible persecution, but God will use that persecution to open their eyes to the one whom they have rejected. And I saw heaven opened, he begins. John here sees this revelation, this unveiling, not to be confused with the rapture. We discuss the rapture in Revelation 4 and verse 1. There he said, a door standing open in heaven. He saw a door opened in heaven. This is a very different event. The clouds, somehow like a scroll, are going to be rolled back. 
the whole world will have the attention of the heavens above. We saw a magnificent sunset this week, and you couldn't help but just look at the the beauty. Listen, God is going to roll back the clouds like a scroll, and every eye is going to see Jesus coming back. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, we've seen different clusters of this phrase, I saw. This is the final seven I saws here in the Revelation. This is the first of the final seven. And it will carry us all the way through chapter 21. Seven rapid I saws that will carry us all the way to the great white throne judgment there out in outer space. Seven events that will follow Jesus' second coming to the earth. You might want to go home this week and circle those and see if you can find them. Now, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter 6, and the Antichrist who comes as an imposter, like an angel of light, and he comes on a white horse, but that's all he is, is he's a phony. And of course, that was symbolic of the phoniness that he will bring to the world at that time. This is no symbol. Here, Jesus will literally actually come on a white horse. Now, if you remember in the final week of his public ministry before the crucifixion, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey, just as the prophet had predicted. But when he comes a second time, he's not coming on a donkey. He is coming on a white charger in honor and in victory and in conquest. And that's how the first century reader would have immediately understood this phrase, white horse. Because in the first century, Roman generals would ride a white horse, and behind it would be all their captives after a great battle. Julius Caesar drove a white chariot drawn by white horses after he conquered North Africa, and he came down the Via Sacra there in Rome. Domitian, the man who, if you remember, put John on the island of Patmos. Some of you have been with me to the Isle of Patmos, and we went to that cave, which at least traditionally says that John wrote the revelation from that cave. I don't know for sure, but I know what island he was on. And this great emperor, of course, when he conquered a people in number of writings, he is seen riding on a white stallion. Listen, God wants to affirm to these seven churches who are initially receiving this book that the Domitians of this world are history, that our Lord, our Savior, is going to rule over all the leaders of the world. He will literally ride on a white horse, and He will dismount there on the Mount of Olives as He sets His feet on it. And on this day, He will no longer be riding humbly on a donkey. He will come as the great victor, and He will come in judgment. Listen, to what Jesus said. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then He adds concerning the goats, the unbelievers, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Likewise, Paul records that when Jesus comes back, he is going to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And when he comes back on that white charger, the Bible says he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Have you responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus? I hope you have, and I hope if you haven't, you will before this day is over, because He will deal out retribution to those who do not respond or obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. What will happen? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Let's read further here into verse 11 and look at these descriptive names given to the Messiah. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. He describes him as faithful, meaning he will do what he says, and he is described as true, meaning that his word can be trusted. Jesus' title, Faithful is totally reliable, and it is in direct contrast to the Antichrist who is unfaithful, who lies to the peoples of the world, who breaks his promises to the people of Israel. His title is also that of true, because God can never perjure himself. Moses said, God is not like a man that he should lie. The writer of the Hebrews says it is impossible for God to lie. Paul said to Titus, God cannot lie. Unlike the Antichrist, Jesus is the opposite. The Antichrist was untrue, and he deceived people. This description of Jesus is very different from the deception of the evil one and very different from those who followed him, the Antichrist and his false prophet. Jesus, who is the truth, I am the way, the truth, can only speak truth, and he will do what he says. He will be faithful to pull it off, and the very fact that he is coming again demonstrates that he is faithful and true, for that's what the Old Testament wrote of him, and that's what he himself said would indeed happen. Now, do you remember all the way back in Revelation chapter 3 when we studied the seven churches? One of those churches was lukewarm. One of those churches was apathetic, the church at Laodicea. And that's where we were introduced to these titles of the Messiah, to the angel, to the messenger, we'd say today to the senior pastor of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness. You think about that. If your heart is compromised today, if you are more attracted by the things of this world than by the Lord Jesus if you are lukewarm and apathetic, you are basically denying what Jesus said about himself, that he is indeed faithful and true. Basically, you're saying, Jesus, you said that you came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, but I don't think that's true. I don't think you are faithful to do that which you have promised, so I've gone after other things. And it's a denial of who Jesus really is. Let's read further into verse 11 of chapter 19. Now, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. It's a marvelous title. He is faithful and true. And in this context, it is reminding us that God will be faithful and true concerning what he said as judge. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. Again, if you remember at his first coming, there on the Mount of Beatitudes, where we, he gave the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he's up on top of a large hill, a mountain of sorts, and there are thousands of people below him, and if you've ever been there acoustically, it is like a unique place in the whole Sea of Galilee. That's why we know it's a Class A spot, and your voice will carry to thousands of people. And Jesus spoke to those who say they are Christians, 
who say they are saved. And he doesn't go for some apathetic ho-hum testimony of someone who said they are saved. They said, I preached in your name. I did miracles in your name and even cast out demons in your name, all which are possible for an unbeliever. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. And he warns that they are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And so these who are on the broad road leading to destruction, who in essence, in their heart of hearts, reject Jesus. Now Jesus will reject them. Listen, you cannot manufacture and create a Jesus as you would like him to be. You must go by what God has revealed in Scripture. And the only reason he has not yet come is because God is long-suffering. The Bible says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that dramatic final judgment we're going to study in the 19th and the 20th chapters. But right now, this is a time of grace. This is a time of mercy. This is a time of the long-suffering patience of God where you can still be forgiven. But a day is coming when the dam of God's mercy will break to His judgment and there'll be no further opportunity. His eyes, verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. The apostle John is describing here, in essence, the perfect vision of Christ. His eyes are a flame of fire. We study that in Revelation 1.14 and in Revelation 2.18, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But you remember to the church at Thyatira, he reminded them that absolutely nothing escapes his vision. Jesus will not be able to be fooled. He is incapable of acting in an unjust fashion. With his piercing vision, he will see everything that we've done. With his omniscient vision, he can perceive and he is going to discern the kind of judgment that every unbeliever will have met out. The mask, the facades will be removed. And fire, of course, as we've already studied, is a picture of the judgment of God in Scripture. God not only sees you this morning, He sees through you. He has x-ray vision. Now, we may want some opaque window over our hearts or some stained glass window in religiosity, but it is clear glass and he sees everything about us. You cannot hide from Jesus. You can hide from your pastor. You can hide from your boss. You can hide from your spouse, but you cannot hide from God Almighty. And so we are not surprised that in Acts 1.24, Jesus is called the cardia nostes. You can hear the word cardia we get our word heart. Gnosis, our English word knowledge. Jesus is literally the heart knower. Why? Because he knows the hearts, as Luke writes, of all men. He knows the hearts of all men. Jesus reminded his disciples that the world would hate them, that if they hated me, they'll hate you. And that's still true because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want all your friends to like you, then you are a compromised person. If you live for Jesus, there will be some people who will not like you. And Jesus said, they're going to abuse you, they're going to even kill you. And he said in Matthew 10, therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. With those eyes that once reflected tenderness and joy that he would cradle little children in, with those eyes 
that once reflected empathy when he encountered people who had zero hope in this world. He called them sheep without shepherd with those eyes that communicated sadness as he saw Peter deny him three times and with those eyes that communicated compassion when he forgave Peter who was crushed over his denial with those eyes as his heart was broken, as people's bodies were filled with disease, or Mary Magdalene's heart was filled with seven demons, with those eyes as he literally wept over Jerusalem because of their rejection of their Messiah, with those eyes that flood tears at the tomb of Lazarus, with those same eyes, eyes of fire, he will execute his wrath. No one will be able to say, how can you judge me? You're not there to see me. No, he has omniscient vision. He can see everything. Look again further into verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, diadems, diadema. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. Esther, Queen Esther over Persia, is given a diadem to war. And a diadem was nothing more than an elaborate headband, about two inches wide. Sometimes there were jewels attached to it, or sometimes a type of insignia. And the excavations that have been done give us ample picture of what they actually look like. Here's one. This is of an Assyrian king wearing a diadem. This is what they look like. In this case, it was a uh, a piece of embroidered cloth in gold, and attached to it was a bright red ribbon. Here's another relief. This shows a Persian emperor, and he wears this brightly colored diadem, a red headband with a green plume on it. Here's another one that's been excavated, and I'll not make fun of this guy because it looks like he has red lipstick on, all right? But here's the point. Understand, in the mind's eye of a first century reader, when they were a diadem, they didn't think of the kind of crowns that a 17th and 18th century English king wore. No, this was different. And understand, too, that this is not diadem. Circle the last letter of the word here in the verse. It's diadems. It's plural. This points to Messiah's authority over all the nations of the world. Why? Because when you conquered a people, you would, in essence, take their diadem, the king's diadem, just like King David did when he conquered the Amorites in 2 Samuel 12, and he wore the diadem of that Amorite king in addition to his. 160 years before Christ, Ptolemy VI, the great pharaoh of Egypt, defeated Antioch, and he wore two of those diadems to show that he was sovereign both over Egypt and over Asia. And here God is letting us know that Jesus will be sovereign over the whole earth, that he will have the name above every name. He will have many diadems on his head. On his head will be many diadems, and he will affirm before we're done because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let's read all of verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Describing this, the final glance of Christ's appearance in the Revelation, John tells us he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. Now, I have dozens of commentaries on the Revelation. 
And what's amazing to me is how many of them attempt to tell us what the name is. (laughs) But the text says, no one knows it except himself. Even John, the beloved disciple, did not know the name. Not knowing what his name meant, I'm not obviously going to suggest what it is. But the exciting truth is, is that you will know that name someday when you get to heaven. Do you remember all the way back when we studied the church at Philadelphia? Let me dust off your minds. And I will write on him, Jesus said, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. These people are given a wonderful promise that they will be identified as the people of God forever. I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, in my new name. Three names for the Creator, the city, and God's Christ. Listen, if I own some object that's important to me and I don't want to lose it, you know what I do? I write my name on it so that I identify it as mine. And by the way, as we will study next time, this is not the biblical basis for a tattoo. But just know that God, when He writes these names on you, He is affirming that you are special. The Father will write His name. Why? Because He's establishing ownership, that He has redeemed you forever. He will write the name of His city. We will study in great detail the New Jerusalem. That's where people die and go today. They go to the Father's house, to paradise, to New Jerusalem. Someday, that will become the capital city of a brand new earth. And it's a place where we will spend eternity. But Jesus said also, he will write his name, a name that no one knows, but he will write it on you someday if you know Jesus. Why? Because he's affirming that you are very special to him. Now, in the Old Testament, on occasion, before Bethlehem, before the incarnation, Jesus would come, and he would come as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was no ordinary angel. That angel was called Yahweh. And the New Testament, his name is Yeshua, or in English, Jesus, which really describes his redemptive ministry, that he is indeed salvation. But in heaven, he will have his new name that will mark you. Look further at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, some assume that this is Jesus' blood on the robe, but it's not. All you have to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you will find that that's an impossible interpretation. Now, again, let me just say parenthetically here, there are people who reject the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and you cannot be too careful in our day. There's more than one pastor I've met who did not want to be fired, did not want to be thrown out of his church, So he will use the language of historic Christianity, but again, a different dictionary. And that's how a false teacher comes. Paul says Satan comes like an angel of light, and if that's the way he comes, so don't his ministers. And so you need to discern that this is not some spiritual resurrection. This is a physical resurrection from the dead. But the fact that Jesus physically was raised from the dead, understand his body is different than it was when he walked here upon the earth. There's no blood in his body. Had there been blood in his hands and his feet in that gaping hole that he invited Thomas to put his fist in, you would have seen it all over the ground. But there's no blood in his body. Now, the wounds are there. We sing it, rich wounds yet visible above. That's a great phrase in that hymn. 
because it expresses biblical truth. But clearly, it is a different kind of body. Luke says that Jesus said it's a body of flesh and bones, but there's no blood in this body. It's a body that can literally actually go through walls. It's a body that can suddenly appear and suddenly disappear. Someday you'll get a body like that. And there on that beach, so he would know he, he was not some ghost, he literally actually ate fish. It's kind of exciting. We'll be able to eat in heaven and never get fat, huh? He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood. Whose blood? The blood of his enemies. It's not his blood. Remember, the context of this phrase is not redemption, it is judgment. And again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture right out in the margin next to this verse, if you will, Isaiah 63, 2 and 4. Isaiah 63, 2 and 4. The language of Isaiah the prophet, as he looked at, looks down the corridors of time to the second coming, which is the context of this chapter, he graphically predicts that when Messiah comes the second time, he will establish his kingdom, and in doing so, he will have to avenge his enemies. Listen to his words. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress, the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. A wine press was an elevated platform that was hollowed out, and you'd put the grapes on it, and you'd step on it in bare feet, not with shoes on. You didn't want to crush the seeds and ruin the flavor of the grapes. And then it would flow down into a trough. And as you stood there in the wine press and you were crushing the grapes, yes, it would get on your garments. And here the wine press of God's wrath imagery we've already seen in the Revelation is a picture of God's wrath. Here's actually a, a video of a first century wine press. There was some water in it. It just rained and I just kind of pushed it out and down the trough it went into the catch bowl. And so God is giving us here a picture where he will indeed bring his wrath and these are the blood of his enemies. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is not his blood. He has none now. This is the blood of his foes. Simply said, this scene portrays the awful day of judgment that is coming. And I know that is a shock. It stuns and offends some people that God is literally actually going to come in his wrath. And they fail to recognize that God describes those who are accountable, who've reached a point of accountability, that they are called in Romans 5, enemies of God. Paul says, by nature, we are children of wrath. Now, God has privileged me to share the gospel with thousands and thousands of people since I've been saved. And sometimes I will hear irreverently someone say, well, you know, me and the man upstairs, you know, we've got this agreement, and they so irreverently refer to God. You know, God's not going to judge me. He may judge Hitler, but he won't judge me. And the truth of the fact is that without Jesus, the Bible says we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath, and someday it will be unstopped like a great tsunami, and it will come upon the unbelieving peoples of this world Paul, when he was reasoning with the Athenians, Athenians up there in Mars Hill, is exhorting them to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day 
in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All you have to read is the Gospels. And God affirms through Christ, Jesus said more about hell than he said about heaven. All you need to do is read the writings of the Apostle Paul, virtually any book in the Old Testament, and it speaks of God not only as a God of love, but as a God of wrath. He is clothed, look at verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now remember, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Revelation, right? So he gave us those books, five books in the New Testament. And we're introduced to this title, the Word of God, in his opening phrases of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is one of the familiar names to the people of God for the Son of God. When you speak your words, the mouth speaks what's in the heart, Jesus said, your words reveal your, your heart, your mind. Even so, the Father reveals Himself to us through the living Word, through the incarnate Word. He is described like the Father as the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, because Jesus is indeed the Word of God. He was the Father's agent in creation, the New Testament affirms. Let us make man in our image. Every member of the Godhead is involved and credited with the creation of the world. Who made the world? God the Father did, God the Son did, and God the Spirit did. All three are credited, not just by the plural pronoun, but by other passages throughout the Scripture. But Jesus is affirmed that God brought nothing into existence except by Him. And He not only created the world, He is the agent as the Word of God in saving people and ultimately judging those who are lost. He will speak a word and His enemies will pass away. You don't want to miss next time. Our Bible is the written Word of God because it's all about Jesus. Our gospel is the spoken Word of God, because it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the living Word of God, and someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Now, that's the appearance of our coming King. Secondly, if you're taking notes, I want you to think about the armies of our coming King. Not just His appearance, but let's think for a moment about the armies of our coming King. Look now, if you will, in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Now, a lot of people get a little balled up concerning the return of Christ because they fail to understand that it is in two phases. Now, the Old Testament prophets didn't understand this. It was there in typology, but it was hidden. But it is not until the New Testament that God reveals both the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Listen to what Paul says of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. The word rapture, rapto in Latin, raptora, it's harpazo in Greek. It means to catch up. People say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, neither is the word trinity. But the doctrine of the trinity is affirmed in God's word that there's one God who exists in three persons. I don't care if you call it the rapture, the catching up, the rapto, the raptor. Call it what you want. 
but it was hidden in the Old Testament. Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, we'll not all die in the traditional way, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Hey, friends, this is when our salvation is going to be completed. When in Paul's words, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has to subject all things even to himself. John echoes the same truth in 1 John 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will not be as him. That's Satan's ploy, you know, eat of the fruit and you can be like God. We won't be as him in that sense, but we'll be like him and that we will receive a body like his. Our sin nature will be eternally shed we will be sealed forever and ever and ever in a resurrection body, never to fall again. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Now, unfortunately, the word mystery is kind of like our English word hope. In, in our day, it communicates a different thought in the 21st century, even different from it did in the 17th century, and certainly far different than it did in the 1st century. The word hope today is a very uh, less than definitive word. Well, I hope it doesn't rain this week for Vacation Bible School. No, the word hope, elpidos in Greek, refers to something that is sure and certain and will definitely happen in the future. And so it is with this word mystery. Mysterion speaks of something that was once hidden, a sacred secret of sorts, but is now revealed, now has been made plain. It was once obscure, but it is now plain. And so, even if you didn't know a word of Greek, you could figure that out just by reading New Testament passages that deal with the subject of the mystery. Let me read to you Ephesians 3. The Apostle Paul writes that, "...by revelation there was made known to me the mystery." as I wrote in, before in brief. And then he articulates what the mystery is. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so this new truth, this mystery, is not something that is mysterious. It's a sacred secret that has now been revealed. Not that Gentiles could be saved. That was plainly taught in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews' responsibility was to be a light to the Gentiles. But what was covered and hidden was that God would bring Jew and Gentile together into one body with the dividing wall gone where there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Even so, Paul is reminding us here of this mystery concerning the rapture. Let me read it again. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It was there in the Old Testament. It was given by typology in men like Enoch, but it's not explained until you come to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention it until the upper room. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now understand the word trumpet in the Bible is not simply a musical instrument. In fact, it was not primarily used for musical purposes in Bible times. It was used for purposes of announcements. And as you read the scripture, as this next slide shows, we are reminded that when a trumpet was sounded, it was a reminder that God was getting ready to intervene. It was kind of like God's alarm clock. And so God would sound a trumpet according to Leviticus to call the people to work or to call the people from work. He would sound a trumpet to call the people to come and worship him as in Numbers 10. He would sound a trumpet as a word of warning that the enemy was coming. He would sound a trumpet to call the troops into battle, or he would sound another trumpet to call the people from war. And as Christians, we are waiting for a very special trumpet sound. It's called the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, and in 1 Corinthians 15, it's called the last trumpet. Those are two very important trumpet passages concerning the rapture of the church. And just like the Jews in the Apostle Paul's day, the Roman army would first be called by one particular trumpet. It was called the first trumpet. Josephus, in his book, The Wars of the Jews, mentions the first trumpet, and he also mentions the last trumpet, a deeper sounding tone where the troops were called back from the battlefield. Listen, Jesus is going to sound the last trumpet. Right now, we are in a spiritual war. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. But the trumpet will sound, and we are going to be called home. Now, there's another trumpet that Jesus mentions concerning not the rapture, but the second coming, and it's called a great trumpet. And so some people think, oh, there's this great trumpet, there's this last trumpet. And since the great trumpet happens at the end of the tribulation, it must mean, therefore, that Christians will go through the great tribulation. No, that's not what it teaches. Not to mention the trumpet called the great trumpet is not even the last trumpet sound in Scripture. In fact, trumpets will be sound all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ, as the Old Testament prophets affirm, and as we will discuss when we come to the 20th chapter. The trumpet of the rapture is the last trumpet. And remember when Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, in chapter 14, he has just spoken of a trumpet. Of course, in the context, he's talking about people who are speaking in tongues. And by the way, the tongues of the New Testament are so far different than the gibberish that is spoken today. It's no miracle today, and you depreciate the work of God the Spirit when you try to equate the two. The tongues of today are no different from the tongues that were spoken by pagan cults in the second and third century before Christ. No, there's only one passage in all the Bible where tongues are elucidated. It's Acts chapter 2, and they were real languages. But Paul said, if God gave you the miraculous ability to speak a language that you'd never learned, and he did this so that revelation before the Bible was completed could be given, and then someone didn't interpret the tongue, he says, well, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? Listen, there's a certain sound that called you to the battle. There's another sound that would call you out of the battle. And of course, he doesn't even explain it to these Greeks because they understood the context. 
And so when he speaks there of the last trumpet, they are being called from the battle, and we are going to be brought home to be at rest with the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to. It is a great day, but until that time, we are to be watching. Now, here's the big picture again, just to put your minds in the scale of the whole Bible. Right now, God is building His church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Now, there are amillennialists today who say, well, the church in the Old Testament was Israel, and we are the new Israel, and God's done with the Jewish people. That's what Augustine thought. He got it from Origen, and Origen didn't want to speak of, you know, the church having a king who will literally come and rule on the earth, because that would be a king in competition to the king that ruled in his day, and he could lose his head over it. So they adopted kind of a replacement theology. But no, Jesus said, I will build my church. It was not yet in existence. And if you take my course in ecclesiology, it's not some vague day. You can pinpoint the exact time the church began. The New Testament brings another pas- a number of passages together. The church began on the day of Pentecost. This is the church age. God is building His church. And one of these days, maybe today, the last member of the bride will believe, and the last trumpet will be sounded and will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture. And it will begin shortly thereafter a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. While that's unfolding on the earth, there's a judgment of Christians in heaven. Heaven won't be the same for every believer. Some are more faithful than others, and God will take that into account at the judgment seat of Christ. But while that is happening in heaven, the darkest time in human history is unfolding upon the earth. And one of the functions is to bring Israel to faith, and they will say, they'll call out, blessed is He, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. They will acknowledge He is Messiah. That day is coming. What a glorious day. And the Jews during this seven-year period will lead the world in preaching the gospel, and every tribe and tongue and nation will hear, and then the end will come. What we've been trying to do for 2,000 years, God is going to pull off in that seven-year period, and then Jesus will come, not in the air. We meet Him in the air, but at the second coming, He comes to the earth. It's not by accident in this passage. There's no mention of the translation of the saints. There's no mention of us meeting Him in the air because He is coming to the earth. And then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, there will be the second resurrection. First and second resurrection speak of two programs God has. We'll study this in the 20th chapter. The first resurrection, of course, begin with Christ, the first to come out of the grave. After that, a handful of Old Testament saints with him. Then the rapture. Then at the end of the seven-year period, all the Old Testament saints will be raised. All those who died during the tribulation, their bodies will be raised. But at the second resurrection, only unbelievers will be raised, and they'll be raised with a body that is suited for hell. Now, if you remember, all the way back in Revelation 4.1, after these things, John wrote, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. We call that the rapture. The door is opened, and the church is gone. The church is dominating chapters 2 and 3, but they're nowhere mentioned from chapters 4 through 18. Why? Because the church is not here. And you do not see the church again until the 19th chapter when we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ for the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And this, by the way, fits perfectly with the promise Jesus made to the church at Philadelphia. Let me dust off your minds with that verse. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. By the way, you're not saved by perseverance. But if you are saved, you will persevere. Perseverance is a fruit of salvation. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's an hour of testing, the Bible speaks, that will come upon the whole earth. There's never been an hour of testing in all of the 6,000 years of recorded history we have that has ever come upon the whole planet. Jesus said, that day is going to come. And he said, I will keep you from the hour of testing. It's the preposition ek. It means out of or away from. Jesus does not say, I will keep you through the hour of testing, or I will keep you in spite of the hour of testing, or I will keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. No, I will keep you out of, from the hour of testing. Now, if Jesus wanted to convey to the church that they would be protected during the tribulation, he couldn't have said it any more plainly than he did in this verse. And if he wanted to, be, if he wanted to affirm that he would just watch over them through the tribulation, he would have used different pronouns. He would have used the word dia. I'll save you through the tribulation. That's not what he says. And by the way, this promise to the church of Philadelphia is meaningless if he's promising to keep them through their tribulation because no one exists in the church of Philadelphia. In fact, in this city, today in Turkey, there aren't any Christians. It would be a meaningless promise because all these people have been dead for nearly 2,000 years. Well, how is he going to keep the promise? Because there's two sides to the rapture. There's the living saints that are translated, but absent from the body, present with the Lord, the Lord will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Their spirits are in heaven. They're given some kind of an intermediate body. He will bring with him from heaven. The, the spirit in heaven will be reunited with the body in the grave. Up from the grave they will come. They'll rise first. They need a head start. They're six feet under. They'll come up first. Then those of us who are alive will meet the Lord in the air and will be forever changed. For the Lord himself, listen to this, will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we shall always be with the Lord. The church will literally disappear. The door in heaven will be opened. And so again, the fact that they are absent in chapters 4 through 18 is not at all by accident. Listen, before God executes his wrath, he removes his people. He's only in the fullest way executed wrath on the earth on two occasions. One in Noah's day, and what did he do? He put Noah and his family safely in the ark. And the other occasion was in Lot's day, and he took Lot and the few believers in his family and put them safely out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Jesus comes for his church, he will take us out of this world in the worst time in human history designed to bring people to faith will begin to unfold. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you out of tereo ek from the hour of testing. That's the promise. Now listen, there's never ever, you've got to rationalize, spiritualize so much of the Bible 
to make the false view that the amillennials has because there has never been a time when trouble has come on the whole earth. Listen to what Jesus said of this seven-year period. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'll keep you out of the hour of testing. And then he promises in Revelation 3.11, as he does with every church, he who has an ear, let him hear, not what he says to the church, but to the churches. He is not giving this promise just to the church at Philadelphia, but every true Bible-believing church, yes, even the people at Community Bible Church. What a magnificent thing. So here's the slide again, the big picture. We're in the day of the Lord right now. It mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. We're in the shadows right now, and it's going to get very dark after the rapture takes place. And it will be the darkest seven years the world has ever known. And then Jesus will come. And in Malachi, his second coming, he's likened to the S-U-N. The S-O-N is called the S-U-N. It will be a bright and glorious day for a thousand years. But we will study it in Revelation 20, how it will get dark again, right at the end of the thousand years. So it mimics a biblical day. So first, he comes for his church in the rapture. Don't confuse the rapture with the revelation, with the unveiling. Then he comes back with his church literally to the earth. Look at verse 14. We're almost done. Hang in there. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Notice it does not say the army, but the armies. Circle the word S there on army. The armies, indicating there is more than one group. Who's included? The church, the body of Christ. God's holy angels, they'll form an army of sorts. And tribulation saints, those who were martyred, the millions during the time of the tribulation, they'll all come back. And the emphasis here is on the clothing. We studied it last time in verse 8, so I'll not spend any time on it. They're coming back in fine linen, white and clean. The point is that God is coming back, and when He comes back, He's not just bringing a choir. He is bringing a victorious army. He is going to take all those armies of the world that have amassed themselves for the battle of the Armageddon, and He is going to crush them in a moment's time. That's what the Bible teaches. Every eye will see Him, and God's people that have been trampled, that have been persecuted, that have been mocked and muddied, they will come back in fine linen, white and clean, and God will fulfill the promise that He gave, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, we're told, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. The transportation of this conquering king will be a white stallion. But not only will he be on a white stallion, we too will be on white horses. It's a marvelous truth. It is a great truth. You say, I've never ridden a horse. I'm afraid to ride one. You won't be on this day, I promise. If you've never ridden a day before, you'll be able to ride on this day. People sometimes call me on the Bible line, Tuesdays at 11 if you're interested, wagp.net. Uh, a little commercial. They say, will there be animals in heaven? Of course, look at it. These are horses coming from heaven. We know there'll be horses in heaven. We know there'll be dogs in heaven. 
I'm not sure about cats, but dogs, you know. And the armies which in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What a majestic, stirring sight and sound that will be. I remember driving across the United States as a single man from Massachusetts to Colorado as I was working for a Christian organization. And there in the middle of the country, all of these wild Mustangs, masses of them were galloping. I just had to stop my car and look. And the sound of those mighty horses going across the plains was absolutely majestic. Millions and millions of God's people and God's armies will come as we will rule and reign with Christ. Finally, now beyond his appearance and his armies, I want you to see the armament, the armament of the coming king. Notice in verse 15, it's rather chilling. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So John, of course, has already mentioned this sharp sword coming out of his mouth. We've already studied it in detail. And when we looked at it in the other passage, we saw that this was not a literal sword, but a symbolic sword. There's not a literal sword coming out of Christ's mouth, like I've seen in some grotesque pictures, but it's much like the rod of iron. He doesn't have a literal rod of iron, but he is going to keep the nations in line during the time of the great tribulation. And so the Word of God is symbolized in Scripture by the sword of the Spirit. And by the way, you see Scripture interpreting Scripture, whereby you know that this is symbolic and that it symbolizes the power of Christ's Word. On this exact same day, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 says, Then that lawless one, meaning the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. These are not buccaneers spitting swords. This sword refers to the power and the authority of Christ as the sovereign king. Listen to Isaiah 11 and verse 4. You might want to put that in the margin next to verse 15. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So John writes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. This is Messiah's sword. It speaks of his absolute power. And all you need to do is remember Revelation 1.1, that in the opening verse of this book, he said this book is being communicated. The King James has signified. I like that. Signified. It's being given in signs. And so our job is to find out what does the sign mean, and then you literally believe what it means. And five times in the Revelation, John emphasizes this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth as speaking of the breath and the power and the authority of his word that comes. Listen, he's not coming back to Christianize the nations of this world. He is not coming back to put his spirits his spirit in the governments of this world. He is initially coming back to judge the world, and he will come with a rod of iron. And this judgment will be swift. It will be complete. Murder will no longer be tolerated. Rape will be forever stopped, ever before it begins. All adulteries and fornications will cease. The LGBTQ movement will absolutely be crushed. Every abortion will forever end. He will come with a rod of iron, and he will rule and reign in righteousness. 
And as we will see, as we will see next time, the first generation that will enter this thousand-year reign will be all believers because Christ will separate every unbeliever from this kingdom. You must be born again. But there will be people who survive the great tribulation who will enter into the tribulation in their natural bodies. And they will have children and grandchildren and they'll live protracted periods of time like the days before the great flood. And God has children, but He has no grandchildren. You may have believing parents. That doesn't make you saved. You have to make a personal decision for Jesus And not everyone will make a personal decision on this day, and we will see the final revelation when it gets dark again, and unbelievers at the end of the thousand years will go against Christ, and we will see how that is absolutely beyond a question of a doubt demands a pre-tribulational rapture. Look at verse 16. We'll finish with this. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, this is not some tattoo. He has his monogrammed robe draped over his thigh, and on it are the greatest names, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the two titles that Moses ascribes to Yahweh, to God the Father in Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of Lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God, and these titles are given to Jesus, Malek Hamalekim. He is the King of Kings, Adonai Ha Adonaim, that is Lord of Lords. He will be the visual manifestation of the Godhead and all of the presidents and all of the dictators and all of the kings and all of the rulers will bow down and affirm that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and we will see His sovereignty and His deity expressed across this planet. Praise God. Monogrammed on this robe is simply that he is the supreme king and he is the greatest lord. And he is not like Pilate said, simply the king of the Jews. No, here it affirms he is the king of all kings. He is the king of the universe. And one of these days, we don't deserve it. Jesus, after the rapture, when we're in heaven, he'll say, mount up, get on your horse. We are coming back to the earth, and you are coming back with me. What a great and magnificent and glorious day that we will study further next time. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications quickly. Number one, ask yourself, do you live with the expectation that the king is coming to judge? Do you live with that expectation? Listen, he came, Isaiah 53, as a suffering servant. But Yeshua Messiah is coming again as a sovereign king. He is coming in righteousness to wage war. He will judge, and all of the ambitions and prides and power expressions of this world will be put down. And I know that may seem un-American. People say, well, God is too loving to judge the world. No, not at all. He is too good not to punish the world. God is a righteous judge. The Bible says he is too pure to look with his eyes upon evil. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You say, Pastor Carl, I thought God is a God of love. He is. He is infinite love, but he is also eternal wrath. And if you preach the love of God, 
to the exclusion of the wrath of God, then you have not given the whole message. And if you preach the wrath of God to the exclusion of the love of God, you have not given the whole message. Now, each half of the truth is absolutely essential, but if you take part of the truth and you make it the whole truth, if all you do is preach the love of God to the exclusion of the wrath of God, then you have a Joel Olstein God, a God that he made in his own image, another Jesus, to use Paul's words. God is a God of love. And if you want to have mercy and grace, you can find it today. God never says next month, next year, next decade. He always says today because tomorrow may be too late for some of us. But if you trample under your feet the precious blood of Christ by ignoring what Jesus did for you, then you are going to meet God in His eternal wrath. Now listen, do you have that expectation? If you're saved and you have that expectation, then you should be warning people. You should be compassionate that someone warned you such that you believe, and you should be warning others. And what an opportunity we have even this week with VBS. Secondly, do you live with the expectation that the King is coming? Listen, nothing needs to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. The second coming is a prophecy-driven event, but Jesus could come today. Jesus said that we are to occupy until He comes, and Scripture plainly teaches that when He comes, there will be some Christians who will be ashamed. Listen to what John wrote in his first epistle. And now, little children, he's writing to believers, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. The Bible teaches that there will be some of God's people that will shrink away in shame. Now, understand, all believers are accepted in the beloved. You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. You can't do anything to make God love you any less. He loves you in Christ in John 17 as much as His own Son. We are all equally accepted if you've been saved. But accepted doesn't mean that you're acceptable. And if you have a compromised lifestyle this morning, you say it's just a little small thing. It's the small thing that leads you to bigger things and will wipe out your Christian testimony. Paul says, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Look, I don't want to shrink away in shame, but everywhere I look, I have encouragement. When I look back, I look back at Golgotha, and I see the incredible price that was paid for me. When I look within, I, I sense the Spirit who bears witness with my spirit that the love of the Spirit has been poured out in my heart, that He's my helper, He is my teacher, He assures me, He comforts me, He helps me to pray when I don't even know how I ought to. When I look around, I see my brothers and sisters in Christ who want to encourage me. But when I look ahead, I see Jesus someday coming back from heaven. And John will write, everyone, everyone, who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Are you living with the expectation that the king is coming finally? Do you know this king? Listen, the biggest shock day is coming when millions of people who think they know Jesus will hear the words, I never knew you depart from me. And we are living in a day where we live in a world that is covered over with phony, plastic, cardboard Christians, pseudo-Christians, who have never, ever been born again. Now, Jesus will first come in the rapture so that you can come back to earth with Him. But listen, 
If you don't know that you know that you know, you should settle it today. And if you need help, you come down this aisle during the invitation and I'll help you so that you can know Jesus is Lord. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for your word that is true, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that as your people, we not only know what has happened in the past, but you've given us the end game. Thank you that we are on the winning side. May we have compassion in our heart this week for those that we will encounter. We can't win everyone, but we can win someone. So help us to carry around in our bodies, as Paul did, the death of Christ, the gospel of Jesus. Then when we meet men and women and boys and girls this week, if you would just open a door and crack it a little bit for us to reach out, may we be sensitive to the Spirit and to His leading. Give us that opportunity. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who's really uncertain, and they're uncertain because they're not convinced maybe that what Jesus did was full and complete. Help them to see that salvation is the gift of God, that gifts are not earned, they're humbly received, that if they will renounce their sin as evil, that it's something that needs to be forgiven, that they need a Savior for, if they will repent and believe that Jesus' death and resurrection will save them, you said you would save them today. Help someone to believe what you said. You said that's the nature of faith. Help someone to believe what you promised. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And then give them the courage to publicly and without shame to confess it before man as you said every true child of God would. We ask it now in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen.